Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ, and we thank you for the grace that you continue to give us and is still available to us Lord, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we come before your word that he would become more glorious to us, Lord, more meaningful to us, Lord. I pray that our hearts would just be lifted and encouraged and strengthened by you as we go to your word. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen. honor and privilege to come to the Word today with you. Um, I was told Friday the Bible sick, so I offered to fill in. Um, the text message came in saying, hey, I'm sick, I need someone to preach. And I was like, ooh, 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 Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, I love this passage. So I gave him, like, everyone else, like, 20 minutes to reply, and no one did. So I said, I'll do it! Because <laughs> I really love these passages in Matthew. I'm really excited to um, preach them. So um, today we are in Matthew chapter 4. So if you turn your Bibles there. So Jesus was just baptized by John in order to, as Jesus said, fulfill all righteousness. And then the dove comes, the Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove. And then the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, which says, And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. So we've been studying the book of Matthew, and uh, there's four Gospels, and each one has like their particular thing that they're trying to drive home about Christ. There's lots of things to say about Christ, but each one has like this picture that they're trying to show you. And a lot of it has to do with the audience to which they're writing initially, although it's for all of us today. Matthew was primarily concerned to prove 
that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah that was promised throughout the whole Old Testament. And so he, he showed it through the, the lineage and genealogy of chapter 1, like, hey, this is Abraham's descendant, the promised one. Oh, this is David's descendant, the coming king. But it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to prove it. So now Matthew's going about and proving the point. Now, um, if Jesus is the Messiah, he is going to save his people. And what that's going to entail is that in all the ways that the people of God had failed in the past, Israel had failed, Jesus would come through and do what they did, but perfectly. So there's, an, um, there's a prophecy from Isaiah 49, and I'll just read it to you um, and hear this. So Isaiah 49 says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So two things to note. First of all, the person was called Israel, but then he's going to save Israel. So, and he's talking to you, you person, individual, are Israel. And you're going to save my people Israel and bring back my people Jacob. And so this is where we get the idea that the Jesus, we call him the true Israel. He does exactly Israel was supposed to do for them, and then he saves them. And the second thing to notice is, he turns around and says, and it's not enough that you should gather my people Israel. He says it's too light a thing. Too light a thing. And the word light is the opposite of glory. Glory in the Bible has this idea of weightiness and awe. He says it's not glorious enough that you should be my servant just to raise up Israel. No. This is going out to the nations. You will gather the nations. Now this is important because, oh, I'm not a Jew. (laughs) And I really appreciate salvation. Israel was in a, what's called a covenant relationship with God. And the closest thing that we have to covenant in our culture is marriage. We've bound each other to each other. And in these covenants were stipulations. They go something like this. If you're in the right relationship with the person, there are benefits. And if you break the covenant, there are curses. So if you do this, you get blessings. If you do this, you get curses. Now, Israel, again and again and again, kept breaking the covenant and kept kind of piling on curses upon themselves. God kind of stayed it off for a while, but eventually God says, okay, you know what? Contract over. You have broken all <laughs> the covenant stipulations. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be, you cannot be my people anymore. You cannot receive the blessings that come from being in relationship with me. But I made a promise that I would bring you back. And so what he does is he sends Jesus to fulfill all the covenant blessings. So that when, when, after Jesus does all this, after the cross, God says, you are my beloved son. You are the one who have all the blessings. You deserve them all. And then Jesus says, now come to me and I will give them to you. You cannot earn covenant blessings. All you deserve is curses. So I'll take the curse and I'll give you the blessings. It's the best deal in the world. And not just for Israel, 
but for all people who would come to him. Now, the reason why this is kind of important to understand going into this is that Matthew is kind of showing the Israelites that he's doing everything that they did, but better, without sin. So it starts with, um, well, let, let me just give you some of the parallels. Um, the people of Israel were, were saved from the wrath of a king, Pharaoh. Jesus was saved from the wrath of a king, Herod. The people of Israel were delivered from Egypt. And there's that passage in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Okay. The people of God, this one's a little bit weird, but I'll prove it. The, the people of God were baptized, Israel, when they went out, when they walked through the Red Sea. The only reason I know that is because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. That when they walk through the Red Sea, they're baptized into Moses. Which means that baptized in some sense has, like, identified with. Like, you're being identified with Moses. And it says, so the people of Israel were baptized, and then Jesus is baptized. He identifies with his people. And now, and now, just like Israel was sent in the wilderness to be tested, to see what the quality of their heart was, so too Jesus is being sent now in this passage into the wilderness to see what is in his heart. He gets tempted and tried. Okay, so the Spirit has just come upon Jesus. And the first thing the Spirit has him do is drive him to the wilderness in order to be tempted. <laughs> it's like, and then, and then fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So this is how Jesus starts his ministry. A planned confrontation with a devil at which he is physically his weakest. 40 days, 40 nights, no, well, no food, no water, and I doubt sleeping in the desert is um, peaceful and restful. So, and tired. So here they are in this great climatic, as it were, battle. And even when I was studying this, I'm trying to think to myself, okay, there is more teeth in this trial than I give credit for. I cannot feel the teeth and the pain and like the, the longing and the struggle that's in these temptations. Um, I, I've, I, I've asked God, please, please help me see this. And I think like, I'm growing and seeing it a little bit better. Because sometimes I read this, because even as a kid, it's like, oh, bread and stone. Oh, man, that's okay. Jump off a cliff. Oh, yeah. It's like, I, I, in some ways, like, I'm afraid of heights and jumping off heights. I fail to see how this is a temptation. But I'll try to show you, like, what the desires were that the devil is trying to pull out of Jesus. So, it says, he was led in the wilderness to be tempted, and he fasted 40 days, 40 nights. And as we might all understand, he was hungry. Okay. And then, the tempter. Satan. Okay, he gets called the devil, Satan, and the tempter, all in this passage. But he's characterized as, you want to know what this guy's all about? He tempts people. That's who he is. The tempter comes. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the first thing he goes for, <laughs> kind of goes for the gut, right? You're hungry. You're starving. I heard what God said at the baptism, my beloved son. But here you are, starving in the wilderness. Are you truly the son of God? Is that what God does with his beloved son? Cause him this pain, this anguish, this struggle? And if you are the son of God, certainly you have the authority of God to say, hey, stones, turn into bread and feed yourself. I mean, certainly you're allowed to do that much. So Jesus replies, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay. So, and this is what's going to happen. Like, the devil gives a temptation, and Jesus responds with Scripture. This is what the Scripture says. And it goes against what you're telling me to do, so I'm not going to do it. But what's really interesting about the three Scriptures that Jesus uses in this passage, they all come from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called the Torah, the first five books. It's, it's the books that Moses wrote to kind of tell Israel, Genesis, who you are. Exodus kind of re- tells about how God redeemed his people out of Egypt and made his covenant with them, and they were his people. Okay, and then it also in Exodus records how the people, I've told you this, failed again and again in all these tests. And then in Deuteronomy, kind of 40 years later, Moses is looking back, kind of his, his, kind of his last letter, saying, okay, Remember how this happened? Did you learn a lesson? Here's a lesson. Do you remember how you failed here? Remember the lesson? Here's a lesson again. And Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Like the second time, people. Let's do it a second time and just establish this. So all these passages that Jesus is using to say, it is written, it is written, it is written, is passages looking back at points at which Israel failed. And Jesus says, did you not learn the lesson? But this is the lesson. Okay, so this first one. When Israel went into the wilderness, one of the first things they ran out of was food. And so they began to grumble, saying, God, you don't care about us. God, you want us to die. Oh, that we might go back to Egypt. Be slaves, but at least we'll have food. And and so God says, all right, I'll give you manna. And so he miraculously provides food for them every single day. Now, the people should have trusted that God would have provided for them, but they didn't. They stopped. It's like they halted the show and said, we were not going another step further until you feed us because we don't think they're going to provide for us. And so God provides for them. And so Moses, looking back, says, look, do you remember how God fed you manna in the wilderness? But he, he was teaching you that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he kept your sandals from wearing out. He kept your tunic from wearing out. How do you think you got through the desert? If it wasn't for, by a miracle, I mean, could you imagine nations standing around side, like living next to rivers, and this nomadic group shows up and then disappears in the desert? And it shows up and disappears. Like, how are they doing that? There's nothing out there. But God miraculously provided for them again and again, showing them that life is more than bread, more than food. Remember when Jesus was speaking to a woman at the wells in John 4, and the disciples went in to go get some food. And then he starts evangelizing, witnessing to this woman that he is the Messiah. And the light bulb turns on, she gets it, she, she saves, she runs, she gathers people, and they come up and they all recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And it's this, this, this great moment when the Samaritans uh, recognize Jesus as the Messiah who's going to be their Savior. And then the disciples come back and say, hey, Jesus, you hungry? He says, no, not really. He's like, did someone give him food? Did someone beat us to it? And Jesus says, no. My, I have food you don't know of. My food is due to do the will of my Father. God is our ultimate provider. And given a choice between hunger and trusting and obeying God, trusting Him as our Father, we should trust Him. And Satan's challenge is that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't care about us, but despite the anguish that Jesus is going through in that moment, he knows that what God has in store, the reason why he should be doing this, is because there's things a thousand times better than bread. A thousand times. He says, this is eternal life. 
that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not infinite years. No, it's quality of life. If you had infinite years and, and not God, you'd be bored by a year a million. There's nothing left. There's nothing interesting. I mean, we'd bore each other to death, we'd walk away, and that'd be it. But when you have God, who is the source of all delight and of all goodness, and everything else that we enjoy are just tributaries of gifts that He has given us. You have God, you have life. And so every little moment of anguish, grumbling stomachs, anything that God would call us to go into, even laying down our lives, is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it, because we get God. So eternal life is to have fellowship with him, to love him, to worship him and serve him. And it's our sin that breaks that, that breaks that relationship so we don't have the joy and love and all the things that we tend to enjoy, that we want to have. Only found in God, it's our sin that breaks that. So Jesus says, I will not break that fellowship. I will not, for the sake of my hunger, turn these stones into bread. Jesus finds joy and satisfaction and love in obeying the will of his Father despite all else. And so should we. So that is the first temptation. Actually, I should keep saying, Israel fails us, <laughs> okay. and we do. Like, we choose things over God. We do it all the time. Like, oh, I should do my devotions. Oh, the news is on. <laughs> right? And you're so quick to exchange the glory of God for something little. Not like the news is bad, but when you're exchanging it, man. So temptation number two. So it's like Jesus replies to scripture and the devil's like, oh, I know the scripture too. So the devil takes his, takes his hand at using scripture. So the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will, and this is his quote, it comes from one of the Psalms, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay. So I don't think Satan is simply offering Jesus a thrilling jump with, you know, base jumpers. See those guys with those parachutes that go flying down? I would never do that. Like I said, heights are not temptation here for me. I don't think it's just like, hey, jump and the angels will catch you. Wouldn't that be cool? It's, it's bigger than this. Okay? It's much bigger than this. Location is everything. He took him to the temple and then said jump. Okay. There is a messianic prophecy that comes from Malachi 3.1. And let me read it to you. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Ooh, we've already heard that just recently. John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, he's a messenger that prepared the way. Okay. So then what's the next phrase? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So you have the messenger saying, I'm preparing the way of the Lord, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. Now, get this. If Jesus jumped and angels caught him in the courtyard of the temple, wouldn't you think that's appearing suddenly in the temple? Man, everybody would get immediate. The Messiah, that's him. Okay. Now, this is not God's plan. This is not the way the Messiah is going to be revealed to the people. Jesus has, this is the start of his ministry, three long, hard years of preaching in, back, in the backwoods, in Galilee, and up in these, these regions that are not, I mean, I guess Hicktown, right? That's what people in the city called it. You know. He's going to be out there. And for the most part, people are going to reject him, mock him, scorn him, 
kind of show up for a while and then disappear after they get bored with him. And if he would show up in the temple in the capital of Jerusalem, oh, that would be something. And I was thinking about it. Do you know who would be really, really impressed? Really, really impressed with that? Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, zealots. Like all the people in power, all the religious people that are a thorn in Jesus' side day after day after day. Man, if he jumped into that temple, he'd have them on their side immediately. Immediately. And, and then these people would be on your side, Jesus. Don't you see? And so they was like, this, isn't this a great plan? Man, this is how you're going to kick out the Romans. I mean, get all the political parties banding around you. All right, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot at stake here. Power, recognition, you know, glorious entrance. People will be really impressed. But Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Hmm. Okay. Now again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Looking back at a point when Israel put God to the test. Now, this one is a little bit interesting. So the people run out of food, God gives them food. The people run out of water. Now, seeing as God keeps miraculously providing bread day in, day out, day in, day out, you think that God could provide water when you ran out of water. But the people, once again, stop and tell God, we don't think you're for us. We don't think you're behind us. We think we, you want us to die. That's what we think. And, and, and then in this particular instance, in Exodus 17, they actually bring legal charges. To the, like, they, bring, they bring like this, like, they're like plaintiffs in a court case, saying, hey, we've got an issue. Moses, we're going to put you on trial, Moses. And Moses, like, and walks to God and says, they've already came up with a verdict. They want to stone me. <laughs> and so God, this is, what, this is kind of at the point where you think, like, okay, God, are you fed up yet? He's not. He provides for them water. He, he, he has a stone. And he says, okay, Moses, take your staff. Moses, like, the staff. The staff with which I struck all the plagues on Egypt. Yeah, that staff. And go to that rock and strike it. All those covenant curses, you know, the curses they deserve for breaking my covenant, hit the rock with the staff, and I will stand on the rock. I myself will stand on the rock. I'll absorb the blow, and you'll get water. And so, and so Moses looks back. He's like, oh, man, wasn't God gracious in that moment? But Israel, hear me out. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this word also, tempt, tempt, test, that's the same word. That, like, Israel was trying to tempt God to get what they want. Like, arm bar God. Like, oh, you know, it's, like, this is like the third time they stop the show to complain. And every time they do it, they get what they want. Like, you imagine, like, hey, this keeps working. Let's try it again. Like, we know how to get God to give us what we want. We'll just say, God, we're not going to go another step further, and we want to go back to Egypt. And, and Moses says, you are testing God. You're telling him that there's something wrong with him. You're trying to get him to give you something, and that's wrong. Now, push this forward to Jesus. Okay. God did not say, Jesus, jump off the pinnacle of the temple to get everybody's recognition. But if you jump, I don't think, I don't think this is a hypothetical. If Jesus jumped, I'm pretty sure the angels would have come and kept him from falling. Because Jesus doesn't say... Jesus' response is, that wouldn't happen. I would hit the floor, and I would die. That's not what Jesus says. He says, no, because I'm not going to force God to do something that he does not want to do. But I am going to be obedient to my Father, and I I, I understand what these three years are going to cost me, 
but for the sake of the plan, and the sake of redeeming my people, I will do it. I will do it. Jesus will stick to God's plan. So it's ramping up here. One, two, you know, third time's the punchline, right? Jokes. Something happened once, happened twice, third time. Okay, this is the big climax. The third temptation. Again, verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Probably some type of vision or something. Just look at the glory of these nations. The devil said to him, All these I will give to you. Small price. If you fall down and worship. That's it. Which, by the way, really gets to the heart of what Satan's all about. He wants worship and adoration. He's not going to stop until it's God who's at his feet. That's what Satan's about. He wants to be higher than God. And oh man, if the devil could get the Son of God to worship him, it'd be worth anything. I'll give you the nations. And also, again, I don't think this is a false offer because Jesus doesn't reply with, oh hey, the nations aren't yours to give. Like somehow there's a legitimate offer being made here. Now, this is very interesting because why has Jesus come into the world? <laughs> to snatch back the nations from the hand of the devil. And here the devil is saying, I'll just give them to you. I'll give them to you. Bypass everything. We'll just get to the end. Think forward to the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28. Starts with, All authority has been given to me. Now go. Go to the nations. You might think, like, I was talking with my wife about this, like, and I was with her, like, what? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Wait, Jesus is God. Doesn't God have the right over his own creation? And the answer is yes, he does. And so this probably has something to do with the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Fully God, God can say, I'm God, just give it to me. But fully man, I am the Messiah, the spirit powerless Messiah. And I'm going to do everything that mankind has done wrong. And I'm going to be the premier one, the firstborn. The firstborn doesn't always mean like the first one born, like the, the, the greatest one in all creation. I will be that person. And so Jesus follows the plan of God. The way that Jesus is going to get back the nations, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross. And he's going to take our sin on the cross and bear the penalty of sin on the cross. He's going to experience hell on the cross to get the nations back. And it's like the devil's offering him a bypass. You don't have to do that. So when Jesus so when Jesus is about to say no, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross with all the pain and all the agony that that will entail. I'm doing it. And I've kind of wondered kind of hard to say, but I think, I think this might be. Like, if maybe if they made this great exchange, the devil says, I'll just give them to you. you. You get the nation to get all the glory, Jesus. The difference would be, Jesus was not being struck by the devil on the cross. Jesus was being struck by God. He was bearing our wrath on the cross. If he didn't go to the cross, we wouldn't be freed from our sin. So, it's like, 
But he doesn't say, don't worry about the people. You get the glory. You get the earth. You get all the recognition that comes therein. But Jesus says, I've come to save my people and I will bear their sins on the cross. I will be crushed by the Father that we might be reconciled, God to man. So he's exchanging the cross. And besides the fact, Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall, shall, shall you serve. Satan, you try to make it sound like a small thing to bow down and worship you. But it's the biggest thing in the universe. The glory of God. I am zealous for the name of my Father. For he is worthy to be praised. He alone is worthy of all the love that comes from our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is worthy of it. And for me to bow to you, you're not worthy. You're not. You make it sound like some light, trivial thing. And sometimes, like, this is how we act. Like, as if the glory of God is some light, trivial thing. But it's not. It's massive. Because when we behold this, when we share in this, when we see it, again, I say, it's life, and life abundantly. You shall worship the Lord, and Him only shall you serve. So, the devil leaves. As if to say, there's, there's really nothing. <laughs> nothing else he can really throw at Jesus at this point. Jesus, I'm taking the cross, Satan. The hardest thing any, anybody has ever or will ever go through, I'm going to do it. And, and it's like, also, if you're willing to go to that, what else do I have to give you? Now, I'm not to say that Satan didn't try to trip him up again and again and again in his ministry. Probably. And even at the end, the next time that Satan really gets involved is right at the end, Right? feeling Judas Iscariot, trying to make this the most painful betraying that Jesus has ever experienced. And this is where I think to myself, okay, these temptations have teeth. Jesus is the God-man, and people kind of say, well, of course Jesus wasn't going to sin. Jesus is God. How's this even a temptation? How's this even a trial? God, you know, God's not going to... James says, God is not tempted by evil. No, there's nothing here. But Hebrews turns around and says, no. Jesus suffered in those temptations. He suffered big time. He suffered more than you and I will ever suffer in anything. Okay? It's like saying, okay, imagine there is a 10,000-pound dumbbell, Right? And this thing's got to be lifted up. Okay, now you and I go up to this 10,000-pound dumbbell, and we pick that thing up, and we start straining and pulling, and, you know, it's, ow, it hurts, and sweat on our tears. And then you go, I can't do it. I can't do it. And you step away. Okay. Then Jesus comes, and he picks up that dumbbell, and he starts lifting it, lifting it, lifting it, lifting it. And, and you're just like, first of all, you're just blown away that he's lifting this. Okay. And then, and then like, when he puts it above his head, that big moment, and you can just see all the strain and all the pain and all that. Man, Jesus takes any temptation and takes it to its uttermost, to its uttermost, picks that thing up 
absolutely, there's nothing left in that temptation, that temptation to give him, that he does not himself bear, that he can bear. And the reason why this is good news is because Jesus is not just showing off, right? Because the whole reason he's pointing back to Israel, Israel failed, but I will not. Israel failed, I will not. The people that I've come to rescue have failed, but I have not. It's because he's doing it for us. He's bearing the way of temptation for us. Because as we read in Hebrews, that he himself has suffered when tempted, so he is able to help those who are being tempted. So any time that we are in a trial or temptation, first of all, he's not going to trivialize it because he knows what it's like. In fact, any time, it's mostly Hebrews, actually, the book of Hebrews, but any time the New Testament looks back on the temptation and trials of Jesus, they always do it for encouragement. Don't give up. Don't get weary. Jesus endured the worst of it, and he'll help you in the midst of it. He'll fight for you in you. He's there. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Throw off the sin that entangles us. So that when you are in the moments, He is a sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize your weaknesses and He intercedes before the throne of God so you may find grace and help in your time of need. The reason why we can go to God and say, God, please help me, is because He can and He will. And that's the first thing. And the second thing that Hebrews tells us about this whole thing is that he had to be perfect. He had to be perfect so that he could go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. Because if Jesus had ever sinned, he would be guilty and would rightly bear the punishment for sin, his sin. So if he went to the cross and having sinned, any hell he received on the cross was rightly due him. Him. Okay. So he's paying for his own sin. But Jesus did not sin. So when he gets on the cross, the Bible calls it imputation. God takes our sin, our guilt, and places it on him. Puts it on him. And then he bears the wrath and he dies so we are free. Because remember, as I said at the beginning, all we deserve is covenant curses, covenant curses, covenant curses. We deserve no blessings. So Jesus says, I'll take the curse. I'll take the curse. And then, let me use another analogy. You're in massive debt. Massive debt. There's no way you're going to pay off this debt. And Jesus comes by, and because of who he is and all that he's done, He's got a massive bank account. Like Bill Gates comes and says, hey, do you have a problem with some debt? I've got you covered. So he comes to your bank account and says, okay, bank, I'm here to close the account. I am paying off all the debt. So he pays all the debt. And then he says, okay, you could have said, okay, here's a million dollars more. Okay, be careful next time. Just be careful. Okay, no. He doesn't just give us a million dollars. He says, okay, I'm closing your account. And I'm going to make you a co-writer in my account. You, you can write you know, your name and you can cash out on my account. That's better. Wait, I get to write checks? With the blessings that 
Jesus earned. All the promises are yes in Christ Jesus. So we, we find help and we find grace because he closed our account and gave us his blessings. That we are found in what the Bible calls in Christ. If you would put your faith in Christ, call him Lord, call him Savior. He is my Lord, he is my Savior, and he gives you the blessings of being in communion and fellowship with God. So, as we go to communion, what communion signifies? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Oh, man. We need this. Man, we need this so much. Day in, day out. like you leave on Sunday so quickly you forget man I'm glad he gives us something every week to remind us that he's there for us glorious we don't just we haven't just received past tense we receive, 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 receive grace. God's power working in us. And it's times like this when we reflect on Christ. We say, thank you. Help me. I need you. There's something happening. You're getting grace. Another dose. Another push. So it gets us through to the end. It's grace upon grace upon grace. As we come to communion, if the worship team would come forward and pass it out and hold the emblems and we'll partake together.
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and blessed it, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. Oh man, we needed a new covenant. A big old start over, God. We need help here. This is the blood of the new covenant. Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this cup in remembrance of him. So that whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we look forward to the joy. He's coming again. And we proclaim his death until he arrives. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we are so grateful that you came. Well, sometimes we are grateful you came. That's just the fickleness of our hearts, Lord. But you loved us all the same. Lord, you love us when we are unlovable. You strengthen us when we fail. Lord, even still just feeling that in many ways, I just don't understand the depth of the temptations that you went through for my sake. You told me they were great, and I believe you. I believe you. I think when we get to heaven, we'll get it when we see your glory and your majesty with unveiled faces, we'll get it. We'll see what's at stake and we'll know that all the pain, all the suffering, it was worth it to have you, to be in this relationship with you and all the blessings that come with it. Lord, I'm afraid that there are Maybe people just don't even get it, period. They don't see the glory, period. And sometimes I even wonder if that's just me. But God, we know that where your spirit is, there is freedom. And so we ask that through this proclamation of the gospel, 
that something as strange as stuff as like covenants and blood and dying and temptations, things that seem so foreign to our 21st century would suddenly just make a lot of sense. And your glory would make a lot of sense. And it would affect the way that we live. Lord, I pray that you would open up eyes to see and to savor Jesus Christ. And in this, the same viewing, God, that in our moments when we're trifling with sin, Lord, that you just remind us of all Jesus did for us and all the joy that's set before us so we can say it's not worth it. And so we come to your throne asking for grace. Oh, Lord, we need your grace. Day after day, Lord, I need your grace. So we ask for help this week. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to encourage and bear one another's burdens. We thank you. Man, we have so much to thank you for. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand.